Welcome to Budget Watchdog, All Federal, the podcast dedicated to making sense of the budget, spending, and tax issues facing the nation. Cut through the partisan rhetoric and talking points for the facts about what's being talked about, bandied about, and pushed to Washington. Brought to you by Taxpayers for Common Sense. And now, the host of Budget Watchdog AF, TCS President Steve Ellis. Welcome to all American taxpayers seeking common sense. You've made it to the right place. For over 25 years, TCS, that's Taxpayers for Common Sense, has served as an independent, nonpartisan budget watchdog group based in Washington, D.C. We believe in fiscal policy for America that is based on facts. And our team at TCS works to ensure that taxpayer dollars are spent responsibly and that our government operates within its means. It's literally our mission. We believe in transparency and accountability so that no matter where you are on the political spectrum, no one wants to see their taxpayer dollars wasted. And so you won't be surprised that on today's show, we're focusing on transparency and accountability in bills that are now moving through Congress. One, I'm sure you've heard of, and that's the COVID-19 relief package, otherwise known as the American Relief Plan. And one, you may not have a bill that would require budget justifications and appropriations requests of agencies be made publicly available. So let's start with the latter. And here to get us up to speed and unpack the details of H.R. 22, the Congressional Budget Justification Transparency Act of 2021, is TCS Senior Policy Analyst, Josh Sewell. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. Thanks, Steve. I'm very glad we're tackling this topic today. Just so you know, Josh manages research and outreach on issues, most notably leading our agriculture team, but also issues dealing with the Army Corps of Engineers and general government transparency here at Taxpayers for Common Sense. So this bill and all that it hopes to accomplish is right up your alley. So let's start with the basics. H.R. 22 has already passed the House back in January, and so it's ready for consideration by the Senate. Tell our audience what a budget justification is and why it's so important to all of us, especially those with green eye shades on. So at a basic level, budget justification is simply a document where someone explains each part of their budget. So they're using plain language. They explain what often is just a bunch of numbers. So in the federal government, every agency is supposed to produce a budget justification as part of the president's annual budget request. It gives you details on how the agency plans to spend the funds they are requesting. It also has some numbers on last year's performance. They project future spending and provide an amount of actual spending from last year. Now, there's three main reasons why budget justifications are important. First, they are critical for making sense of the federal budget. Oftentimes, if you look at the president's budget request, it's simply a number, and that doesn't tell you much. So take an agency like the Army Corps of Engineers, Civil Works Division. This is the lead agency for building or maintaining federal flood and control projects, keeping rivers navigable, and ports deep enough to operate. In the president's budget, there are hundreds of projects to be done by the Corps. Each is just a number. $93.6 million, Savannah Harbor Expansion, Georgia. That's it. Doesn't tell you much. So if you want to know anything, you have to go to the Corps' budget justification. And in there, there's section by section for each project. So in the Corps' budget justification, Savannah Harbor Expansion has eight pages. This budget sheet gives you the details. It puts that $93 million in perspective, where it's located, what they're going to do with the funds, each separate element of the project, when was the project originally authorized, what has been spent, projected total cost, you name it. Most of what you need is in there. So the great thing about the core and some of these other infrastructure projects 
They even have maps and diagrams of the project. So what you end up having is most of the elements you need to follow the money while also following in real time on Google Maps. A second reason justifications are so important is they shed light on assumptions in the budget. So budget requests are messaging documents. The president doesn't write bills. Congress does. So the president can often make policy suggestions in a budget, but he doesn't get to implement it without the help of Congress. So what you end up happening is you don't actually have real numbers that are going to happen in real life. So, for example, every year in the Trump and Obama budgets, they propose reforms to the federal crop insurance program. They would have saved billions of dollars. They would have been some great reforms. But Congress writes the laws, not the president. You may look at the budget and say, I agree with this. This is going to be some great policies, but it's not really what's going to happen. So the budget justifications really cut through the spin. And that's where the rubber meets the road in actually knowing what's going to happen. The third reason justifications are important is for certain agencies, they are great for insomnia. I love budget justifications, but not every agency is, is as good as others. So for your kids, maybe for yourself, they're, they're a good way to get to sleep. Full disclosure, I've never gotten through a forest service justification. By page 10 or 12, I'm just sawing logs. Add in some humor to Budget Watchdog AF. I like it. I like it. So, Josh, kind of digging more into this, you mentioned the Forest Service, you mentioned Department of Agriculture, you mentioned the Corps of Engineers. Uniformity is another crucial element of transparency when it comes to tracking appropriations from year to year. And that means being able to compare apples to apples across the executive branch. How does this Congressional Budget Justification Transparency Act make that possible? Well, first of all, it's going to let us find those apples. <laughs> Unfortunately, right now, it can be more of a treasure hunt when you're looking for agency justifications. So each agency publishes their justification in their own format on their own website without uniformity. Sometimes they come out the day the budget is released. Other times it takes weeks. So you really have to root around to find them. So it's less than apples to apples and more truffles to truffles since you got to really root for them. Now, this act would solve that by first requiring each agency to publish its justification online in a readable format. Pretty simple, kind of strange. We still have to mandate that in 2021, but here we are. Another important part is that the White House Office of Management and Budget, which is in charge of creating the budget request every year, would create a list updated at least monthly of each agency required to produce a justification, the date that was produced, and a link to it. So creating a centralized database of sorts that's accessible to the public, sortable, downloadable, that everyone can access to see where all these justifications are. So this centralized accounting of what is out there is probably the best part of this bill because it starts to end that treasure hunt and just give us access to these justifications. Well, Josh, if you'd forgive me to extend the analogy a little bit more, it's like, so no more bobbing for apples at agency websites, but it is actually a baked apple pie right there for us budget nerds to dig in and to really understand. There's nothing more American than apple pie. <laughs> exactly. Or budget justification seats on one central website. So accountability is a word that we use a great deal here at TCS. It's very much the mission of oversight in Congress, too. Do you believe that legislation like the Congressional Budget Justification Transparency Act will make an impact on accountability for the efficient use of taxpayer dollars and help Congress hold the executive more accountable? Absolutely. Budgets need to be accessible. There are thousands of pages worth of materials released with the budget request. And the summary itself is more of a campaign document than it is informative for anybody. And so justifications, again, that's where the agencies really start telling the details that matter. And the agencies are already producing these documents. So it's not a new financial or fiscal burden on the agencies. They have to do this as part of their budget process. It's an internal process, takes a whole year. This is out there. So the costs are minimal and the benefits are incalculable. 
I think one other thing that's important too is it gives you kind of a bit of a history too, and it gets to your point about how the president proposes something in the in the budget, but you don't really know what's the history, whether that happened before or not, or whether this is like total U-turn and spending or something along those lines. And so it really does give a bit of context to what's in there. That's one of the challenges right now is that these justifications they disappear. They still exist, but if you want to find a budget justification from three, four, five years ago, it might be hard to find. It may not exist on the website anymore because websites get redesigned and agencies change hands. Next thing you know, that document you want to compare to see how it performed 10 years ago, you're going to have to dig really hard offline somewhere. We're not going to get into earmarks today, but that is one thing that I have wondered about in the past is we get a budget justification for the information that's in the president's budget request. But then if Congress adds an earmark or adds another project, we don't have that information and we don't have that from year to year. We don't know the history. And so if Congress brings back earmarks, which is what's coming up, that's something that we're probably going to have to look at as well. Don't you think? Absolutely. The budget justification transparency is just the first step in increasing transparency across the board. You can also make these justifications better by adding in some of that information, using them as a more of a look back at what actually happened, not just last year and the actual dollars that went out, but the last few years and how any intervening legislation changed things. So I think it would be really important to think about what would be the next step after the Budget Justification Act can become law. Excellent. Excellent. So listeners of the podcast know Josh is really the Swiss army knife of an analyst here at TCS. He's been here for more than 12 years. And on top of several massive farm bills, earmarked databases, and water project legislation galore, he has been in the trenches digging through the 2008 bailout shortly after he arrived, the 2009 stimulus, not to mention the CARES Act from last year and other COVID relief packages. So while I have you here on the microphone, Josh, let's shift gears and share with our audience an assessment of the nearly $2 trillion emergency spending bill moving through Congress. Most people know it as COVID relief, but the spending bill is actually called the American Rescue Plan of 2021 or ARP. There's a great deal of stuff in this bill that covers areas like agriculture, unemployment, tax relief, testing and contact tracing, direct assistance to taxpayers, loans to businesses, and more. What long-term liabilities are being created here for taxpayers and what should our listeners know? Well, I think the biggest thing about this bill is that it's very large. It's not the longest bill I've ever read, but it's by far the most expensive. $1.9 trillion is a lot of money. That's more money than we spend annually on the appropriations process. $1.9 trillion is more than we spend on the federal budget in a year. By a third, right? It's like $1.5 trillion in the discretionary budget. So we're just jumping over that. Yeah. Not to downplay significant needs that are out there, but this is a lot of money. So there's a lot of responsibility to ensure this is going to actual emergency needs and is not being used to feather some nests or for some nice-to-haves. We talked about this a lot in the CARES Act about accountability and oversight. You know, there's some money that's going in here to inspectors general. I think there was more money that went to inspectors general in the CARES Act, and there was this pandemic response accountability committee. Can you talk a little bit about that, Josh? One of the positive things in the CARES Act, as well as in the ARP, as we call it, uh, is that there is money for oversight. There are tens of millions of dollars in each one of those bills directed at numerous agencies. The inspector general money is explicitly to evaluate the spending of this so-called emergency money. So that's an opportunity for taxpayers, agencies, and Congress to really get a look back at whether or not this money is going out, how it's supposed to, and if it is effective. 
So we are big fans of inspector generals. I'm not sure you could ever give them too much money. That's an open question. But I think more investment in transparency is always a good thing. Here, here. You know, what is the Congressional Budget Office, you know, the nonpartisan congressional scorekeeper of Congress say about the bill? I mean, what are some of the possible economic impacts and what is the overall economic situation our country is faced with right now? The first thing that CBO said was it's going to be $1.92 billion, you know, and that's the total cost over about 11 years. Normally, CBO scores or calculates a bill's projected impact over 10 years. But we're halfway through the fiscal year, and it's clear that a lot of this money is not going to go out this fiscal year. So that's one of the reasons they spread it out to an 11-year timeline. One of the first things we pulled out of the analysis is that a lot of this money is not going to go out quickly. When I last looked, it was about $325 billion of this price tag won't be spent until at least 2023. That sort of undercuts the idea that this is all for emergency spending. Now, there's perfectly good reasons for some money to be spent out later. But if it's a COVID relief package, hopefully by 2023, most of the economic impacts of COVID, if not the health impacts of COVID, will be in the rearview mirror. And so it really begs the question of why we have some of this money spent out so late. So that's the general question, I think, and you look at the CBO's analysis is, are we overshooting in the stimulus right now? In past, there's been arguments where the federal government didn't provide enough stimulus, and so recoveries took longer. This was a different kind of recession. It appears to be a different kind of recovery. It was steep and hard going down, and it's gone steep and hard coming back for some people, and some people haven't recovered. We're in basically unprecedented times. And so I think we need to be open to potentially clawing back some money. It kind of makes you think about that old saw that generals are always fighting the last war. And certainly President Biden, when he was Vice President Biden, looks back at the recovery from the 2008 economic crisis and the 2009 stimulus and thinks that it wasn't enough. But if we get partway into this thing and we realize that we don't need to spend some of this money, is there a component in ARP that will allow the executive branch to claw back some of this spending or prioritize it to different areas just to adjust? just the funding so that we're right-sizing and we're putting the resources where it's needed or not putting resources where they're not needed? Not that I've found. Not any more so than the regular budget process allows certain clawbacks or redirections of funds. And that's a little concerning. That's a little bit of an understatement. (laughs) And so I think that is definitely one of the improvements that needs to be made in these large stimulus bills is to set up structures where it allows funds to be redirected if it turns out the programs aren't needed. Now, there has been an evolution since the CARES Act was passed almost a year ago. The first real major piece of legislation to tackle COVID, both the health aspects and the economic impacts. And so programs have evolved. So the Paycheck Protection Program through the Small Business Administration had a lot of problems when it was rolled out. And so in subsequent legislation and in subsequent regulatory changes, they've adjusted the program. Congress has adjusted the program, the Trump, and then now the Biden administration have adjusted the program to try to target it towards smaller businesses. You may remember that when the PPP, as it's called, was rolled out originally, large companies got some of this money that was directed at small businesses. So you had Shake Shack, some of these other large companies that are franchisees. You had hedge funds or small companies owned by hedge funds, people who had access to capital outside of this emergency process. Some of those shortcomings of the Paycheck Protection Program have been modified. And now you have a a whole class of of restaurants that appear to be overlooked by PPP and other assistants. So you have this restaurant fund in the ARP package. And 
it's the first time it's out there. So it may, it's probably going to have some problems with it. So they'll need to adjust it as they go ahead. But at the very least, it shows that lawmakers have seen the shortcomings of what they've tried in the past and they have modified. And I think that's the most important thing moving forward is that the Biden administration can do a lot of things, can pivot when needed, but Congress needs to have a hand in it as well. What we fail to see oftentimes is Congress saying, what did we do last year and, and how can we improve it? They don't tend to do a lot of look back in Congress. It's certainly something that we've highlighted over the years as being an issue and talked about meeting out the funds. And I know that's something we've talked about also with disaster bills and making sure that rather than just huge chunk of cash going out the door, that it hits certain triggers and parameters to allocate the funds wisely. So that makes a lot of common sense. You know, one other thing before I let you go, Josh, because it's kind of almost the inverse of all this. And it's something I know you've looked into. One of the provisions in this bill is to expand and to make more generous the child tax credit. But it's only doing that for one year, which is going to cost $100 billion, if I recall correctly. But you've mentioned to me that you're concerned that this isn't just going to be a one-year deal and who's going to turn off the tap to moms and kids. It's going to be very difficult to undo some of the temporary changes that are in this bill. This is a problem we see in tax policy in general and in other areas of the federal government. Under this bill, the child tax credit would be increased by 50% and even more so for some people. One of the problems is, yes, it's only for one year, but also it's actually a temporary increase to what's technically a temporary increase. The Republican tax cut bill that they passed in 2017 actually doubled the child tax credit at that time, but it only did it for eight years. So four years from now, the child tax credit, unless something has changed, is going to drop all the way down to $1,000 per kid instead of the current 2000 and the temporary 3000 to $3,600 per kid. It's going to be very, very difficult for members of Congress and the Senate to stand up and say, we're going to eliminate this very generous, well-received tax benefit that actually has lifted many people out of poverty. So they're probably going to extend it, but they're not going to pay for it. So it becomes a, an unfunded liability and it's going to cost a lot of money. So Congress needs to have a conversation and make the tough decisions on how to pay for this important investment if they think it is. So there you have it. Josh Sewell, Senior Policy Analyst at Taxpayers for Common Sense. Thanks for being here to get us up to speed on two important laws impacting taxpayers in the 117th Congress. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Steve. It was great. So coming up next time on Budget Watchdog All Federal, we'll continue to dig into the budget. We'll bring in some additional TCS policy experts and really look forward to the Biden administration's 2022 fiscal year budget. Thanks for listening to Budget Watchdog AF. I hope you'll subscribe and share this episode of our podcast with friends and colleagues. We're always looking for your input, suggestions, questions, and help. So send your emails directly to me at president at taxpayer.net. Until next time, we'll keep reading the bills, highlighting wasteful programs that poorly spend our money and shift long-term risk to taxpayers. 